0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for the World in Time podcast has been provided by Lizette Prince through the EJMP Fund for Philanthropy. Today, we are talking with William Hoagland, historian, essayist, longtime student of American history, talking is, to us today about his new book, Autumn of the Black Snake, Creation of the U.S. Army and the Invasion that Opened the West. Bill, I truly enjoyed this book because you're such a good writer and this is a truly fine story. And, and as I understand it, the time of your, of your book really is 1791, 1794, 95, the creation of the U.S. Army. But you begin with a battle or a defeat endured by a man named Jeffrey St. Clair somewhere in the Illinois country and, and Major General Richard Butler dying at the base of an oak tree. Who was Butler, what was he doing there? And, and what was that part of the country known as in, in 1791? It was known by by different people as
1: as various things. And so Arthur Sinclair led American troops into what turned out to be an an ambush in what is now Ohio. um, And the the attempt was to, for the United States, recently formed as a nation, to take over and establish sovereignty and possession of what is today Ohio, Indiana, and actually all of the area, uh, ceded by Britain after the revolution. To America, uh, to the United States, and established that as a uh, as a place of, of uh, orderly settlement. Of course, there were other nations living and working and doing business in that area, and so Richard Richard Butler died under a tree in the attempt by the U.S. to take that to take that whole area, and in that particular battle in which Sinclair's known by known as Sinclair's defeat to the Americans but if you flip the point of view a little bit known as the victory over St. Clair perhaps by the indigenous nations that had confederated to defeat him uh, it actually represents the high watermark in uh, native native victory over United States troops in November of 1791 it was a rout of the United States. It was a far bigger, I mean, in terms of casualties and proportion and so forth, far bigger than the more famous, much later, uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn, for example, which people know much
0: more about. What, what, who were the Indians? I mean, what, what particular tribes? It's like you say, a confederation. confederation of, of which Indians? Largely led by the Miami of that region
1: and various branches of the Miami and Shawnee and Delaware, who lived there too, and reaching out to a variety of other nations as far west as Kickapoo, uh, and actually also at times including members of the southern, uh, the southern nations, uh, the Cree and, and others from far south, and also in, at times including, or at least engaging with in a kind of tense way, the members of the Six Nations to the east, uh, the Six Nations of the Iroquois so um it was it was beginning to be formed as a powerful confederation shortly before uh, the victory over its victory over Sinclair, and it went on to become bigger as time went by.
0: And you say American troops what what do you mean by that? I mean regular troops, militia, <laughs> Kentucky frontiersmen. Uh... Armed how? A hodgepodge, and that
1: was one of the big problems that the United States was uh, trying, or some were trying, some were failing to try, some didn't want to try to deal with, is what the nature of American troops really meant at that time. Because there was no real um, sort of standing US military establishment, no peacetime army at that time, because a lot of people objected to that. So the group that was put together to under Sinclair to carry out what was Advertised, build as a sort of an easy, quick, hopefully you know, really mop up these these Indian problems uh, north and west of the Ohio River. That force that was put together was was a mix of militia, very few regulars, sort of a a stopgap type, stopgap type of. type of uh, recruiting called levies, which was short regulars, but short term and not very well trained and existing only for the purpose of the of the mission, not not permanent regulars and Kentucky militiamen as well. Yes,
0: And you say a route by that. You mean but how many casualties? I mean, this is a traveling force. It's not only militia and irregulars, but also women and children and wagons and horses and. And was utterly destroyed. Yeah, almost utterly. I mean, there were not not
1: very many survivors. All of the, you know, it's we we don't always think about the fact that on these on these expeditions, pe- people talk about and I say camp, you know, camp followers or whatever in kind of general terms. But um, yeah, there were wives and girlfriends and, and babies and children, and there were many many civilians, of course, in, in support. Um, you know, wagon drivers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and all the women, almost all. I mean, maybe one survived. Uh, the rest were killed. Most of the officers and enormous numbers of the men. Of course, the numbers aren't aren't huge by modern standards because it was a, it was a small force, and that was one of the one of the issues. They didn't really have enough enough recruiting, enough people. But um, and and actual numbers are a little controversial. But you know, between six hundred and twelve hundred uh, is a is a nice range because that's how whether you're counting actual soldiers or whether you're counting all the civilians. But yeah, the the essentially when that was over. What had passed for an American army wasn't just beaten in the field, but was literally over, I
0: mean, wiped out. There really wasn't an American army anymore. And who were the leaders of the, on the Indian side? I, you mentioned two extraordinary characters. One is called Blue Jacket, the other Little Turtle. Are they, are they both there? Yeah, they were both there, and
1: Buck Congahelis, a Delaware leader, about whom on whom I focus less in the book, and less is less is less is known, I guess. So it was sort of a triumvirate. But the two sort of the standout relationship to me is the relationship between Blue Jacket and Little Turtle. They actually were not, you know, um, aligned in, in in many ways, both as personalities or even in terms of how they thought about strategy. But they collaborated brilliantly in this defeat of. Arthur Sinclair and essentially together in a kind of interesting integrated merging of their two very different personalities managed to have this this standout victory describe their personalities I mean you they deserve a few words in their favor yeah they deserve you know they deserve a lot of words and it's funny because we we don't we know so much more about other later Native American leaders but Blue Jacket Shawnee extremely flamboyant Extremely interested in, you know, uh, fancy dress and uh, big personality. Very much, in, very much in love with many of the European-style conveniences that marked Native life at that time. There were movements against that. There were purifying and ascetic movements to get rid of all European influences. Blue Jacket was part of the of the movement to drive out white incursion and to hold back. U.S. incursion. No one was more committed to that than he, and yet he was very much involved in all of the. You know, he liked to drink. Um, he didn't wear blue jackets very often. Uh, the, the the fact that he was known as Blue Jacket is a little mysterious. He wore scarlet uh, scarlet jackets with epaulettes, and he's he's often gets a bad rap. I think among people who prefer Little Turtle <laughs> in this partnership because he's, he's often presented as kind of impulsive maybe not as strategic maybe not as wise. Later on I think a lot of white people including white writers began to find Little Turtle more of a kind of appealing Indian type and they began to kind of play the two off against each other and even at the time I think they each had followers. Why, who, why, why was Little Turtle more appealing? I think he's, he had a sort, of myst, a, a sort of more mystical quality a sense of, of tragedy a sense that defeat was actually possible, that the Indians could be defeated. Sometimes, like when the the Blue Jacket crowd was sort of gearing up as when you gear up for war, you tend to do this. The idea of, you know, defeat is not an option. You know, failure is not an option. So you get kind of ginned up that way. Whereas Little Turtle um, always seemed to have this idea that if certain very practical things didn't happen, like if the British didn't offer artillery support, there wasn't going to be much of a way for the Indians to win. So he could actually he kind of accepted the potential of defeat and he just seemed to have this more he was, I think he was quieter. He was implacable. He, he he was as as committed as Blue Jacket to restraining and preventing U.S. incursion across the Ohio River. But as implacable as he was, he was just a quieter sort of personality, it seems.
0: A more, and dressed in, in native dress and a more stoic figure, the kind of Hero Indian we like to see in our movies these days.
1: Yeah, more stoic and in the very few images that one can find uh, that exist to depict him. um, And even they are somewhat controversial in terms of their provenance and so forth. He is presented in more traditional native dress. There are no existing images of blue jacket. So it's all by report that we hear that he walked around in a scarlet jacket and a big hat and was more
0: flamboyant. Okay, the the battle, you know, the route takes place at the a bend of the upper Wabash River. And then eventually news of the retreat gets back to Washington and Philadelphia. I mean, our government is in 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 Philadelphia at, at the time. We have not yet moved it to Washington. And the... Uh, so here is the president of the United States, and he's having dinner, and describe how the news comes to him. Yeah, it's one of the famous stories of Washington's. Um, it was presented as
1: at the time as how great he was at controlling his emotions, but in fact, he completely lost it uh, when he got the news of this defeat because he had told Sinclair. As he gave him his orders personally, in the very parlor in which he received the news, he had he had told Sinclair, Whatever you do, beware a surprise. You know how they fight us, you know we are vulnerable to surprise. Beware a surprise. And of course uh, Sinclair was surprise attacked. He didn't fortify his, his encampment. It was a, it was everything Washington had warned Sinclair against. So uh, Washington not not yet having uh, confirmation. Rumors had come east of the defeat, but there was no yet not yet any confirmation. Washington was at dinner when uh, a soldier arrived at the door, demanded to see the president. He had dispatches from the Western Army. Only the president could see them. He didn't want to hand them to anybody else. Washington came out to the parlor, took or to the entryway, took the dispatches, read them went back into dinner and spent the next hour or so in his normal sort of entertainment mode that he and his, his guests then joined the ladies in Martha Washington's parlor and they all he talked to every one of the ladies as he always did everything seemed normal they all left and he just blew up in a way that I don't think anyone had ever reported has ever reported him blowing up to that degree uh, before or since his private secretary uh, Tobias Lear was witness to this and uh, he was, I mean, he was literally cursing, he was shaking, standing and shaking and waving his arms around and cursing Sinclair, you know, to, to damnation, essentially, and saying it's, you know, the blood of the orphans is on him and recalling that he had told Sinclair this one thing. It was like, you have one job, you know, beware a surprise. And that had completely failed. And
0: Washington, this goes, is a long history with his life and career as a, himself a fighter against the Indians and as a real estate speculator opening up on behalf of Virginia tobacco planters, the land west of the Alleghenies. I mean he, he had been in this country I mean a long time before. I mean uh, this is seventeen ninety one, but but Washington is there in seventeen fifty three as as in what capacity he began his
1: career essentially I mean the fact that he had a career at all which uh, involved his coming back from some disadvantage in his in his inheritance in Virginia uh, he had a career at all because he got involved early on with exploring that very very area beginning to, to get across the Allegheny Mountains to the to the point where Pittsburgh was later built where the Monongahela and the Allegheny uh, come together to form the headwaters of the Ohio River and he had not only seen and sort of tried to open up, but had himself early on speculated in Western land. Um, Everybody, he was certainly not alone in this, everybody who had the means or at least many, many people who had the means at that time were involved in the idea that the the future uh, bonanza, financial bonanza was going to lie uh, in those lands. And so Washington began his career as a teenager, really, um, getting ahead the only way he could by making himself available to those to those speculators and becoming one of them himself. It's a funny leap from, say, 1750s when he begins to kind of come into his own to 1791 when he experiences the news of this defeat. I mean, in 1791, we are talking about him being the first president of the United States. And not only that, but the greatest man in the world, as far as many uh, people were concerned, having pulled off the revolution, helped form the nation, all of that. But the, the, the explosion, I think, goes back to, I mean, he had been involved in trying to take this land and develop it, per, the, the personal and the political join here in a way that makes them almost inextricable, uh, I think. And so he began in the 70s, so we, 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 find, we go back and find him in the 1750s. Um, working for the Ohio Company of Virginia and the Governor, the Roy- Royal Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, Lord Dinwiddie, to actually drive the French out of that area. That's how far back this goes. Back to the, when the French held the area. That's where Washington really came into his own in a kind of ironic and odd way. In the explain sense, explain that, that of, way. That's, kind of, yeah, yeah, that's
0: 1753, and that's uh, the Great Meadow, I think, near yeah near then Fort Pitt Fort Duquesne, but now Pittsburgh and that's an engagement that puts Washington up against the Indians. Yeah.
1: French and the Indians. And of course the Americans came to call that war the French and Indian War. But what ensued from it from, from that engagement is Largely as the Seven Years War that threw the entire much of the globe into a conflagration. And a lot of it starts uh, right there with Washington trying to, to push the French out of Fort Duquesne, which they had built there to establish their own presence and their own sovereignty. As they saw that all these Virginians and other Americans were making moves on Indian land around those headwaters. they The French established their own presence there. And so Dinwiddie sent Washington ostensibly to unseat them from Fort Duquesne and move the French out of there. Washington didn't have enough troops to do that. He didn't have enough uh, native support. He didn't have any any of the, the means to do it. So one of the questions will always remain about what Dinwiddie was really up to, sending this young, completely inexperienced, hyper-enthusiastic, hyperenthusiastic, uh, quite self-involved young man with not enough troops to drive the French army out of out of a very, very well built fort. You know, Dinwiddie had the desire to draw British forces, British policy into the effort to drive the French out of there, because Dinwiddie himself had land interests in that area, as did other members of the Ohio Company, including George Washington's people who had have taken George Washington up and made him what he was becoming. So, of course, that was a defeat. It was it was Washington's first effort in the field, and it was it couldn't have surprised anyone really that it was
0: it was an abject defeat. The the original charter, Crown English Crown Charter to Virginia gives Virginia land all the way to the Pacific coast. Yeah, the Virginians believed they had um, what they thought of as sea-to-sea
1: sovereignty. And what's funny about that is that they didn't really know where that uh, that western sea might actually lie because they hadn't been out and looked at it. It was The maps were, of course, faulty. But regardless of where it was, they were sure they had everything. Um, That's that sort of like where Virginia's, nor- Virginia's northern and southern boundaries, roughly as we know them today, once you got past a certain point, would just kind of expand uh, to the north and south and all the way to embrace the entire continent, whatever that might be. Funny also that Connecticut had similar ideas about its charter, uh, which conflicted with Virginia's. And Connecticut even uh, believed that they, they, Connecticut understood that other states got in the way. But then, after you got past those other other colonies, I should say, one, once you got past them, then Connecticut's claims continued again, sort of forever until whatever might be out there.
0: And the Washington is is, is Virginia, and, and Virginia is tobacco plantations and. Tobacco planters constantly need new land because the tobacco leeches the life out of the soil, so you have to keep finding new soil. So that's one of the uh, motivations for Virginia land speculation.
1: Yeah, one of the big drivers for that speculation had to do with just the need. I mean, tobacco is a terribly bad crop for for, you know, the sort of sustainability, for sustainability. They didn't use that term then, but that's what it was. So they would just kind of play out their land and buy new land and keep planting tobacco. And so the need for new land was was constant. And there's a kind of a development that goes on among the, the sort of more ambitious and smarter and savvier Virginian elites to, to sort of, you know, they, a lot of them stayed in tobacco, but they also began to to, to realize there was value just in having the land Uh, to to plant tobacco, and it might be even more valuable because you could plant other crops there, too. And you see the development of the Virginia elites from tobacco planters to real estate developers, we might say, taking place during that very period in which Washington was becoming one of them and coming into his own.
0: So we get to the Declaration of Independence, and we get to Philadelphia in 1776, and we have eloquent... uh, arguments in favor of independence from some of the Virginians. I mean, uh, not only uh, Jefferson, but also Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry. But, but their real motive is, is, is to grab the land west of the
1: Alleghenies. The ideas of liberty that we are familiar with that came t- into this sort of explosive fruition in, in 1776 are developed, you know, not just alongside of but in interesting and for us now, looking back, I think problematic conjunction with ideas about the freedom to gain new land unrestricted by crown and parliamentary rules about managing that so that the, the, the crown attempted to to manage and at times to control and at times even to prevent Americans on the ground from getting this land, from making de- private deals with Indians, from just sc- from squatting, from the whole range of ways that that white people were moving westward. The Crown was, was in a sense, conservative, not inter- very interested in conserving land for the Indians who lived there and who hunted there, to 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 continue the fur trade and keep it stable, whereas Americans were trying to do it all at once. Fur trade, planting, uh, real estate speculation. And so much of the the rhetoric that we are familiar with uh, about liberty develops with the sense that the the crown is oppressive because it's preventing uh, independent people, uh, independent individuals and and colonies that should have the independent legislatures that should should have the right to do this as well from making deals with Native people for their land. And in that context, you get uh, Jefferson, uh, who, of course, wrote the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson develops ideas about the fundamental nature of American rights and of rights in general, that that, that those rights involve the freedom not just to develop your property and own your property outright, not subject to any sort of underlying crown ownership, but also the freedom, it's a necessary corollary of that, the freedom to continue to move, to continue to migrate, to continue to find new lands and develop new lands, that without that freedom, the fundamental basic rights, as he and other Englishmen and Americans saw them, were being, were being constricted. The problem, of course, being that other people were already living in that land. And here we get a conflict that I don't think has been resolved really to this day
0: in, in Jefferson's mind and in, in Washington's liberty and property go together. Yes.
1: And they are just two of the most famous people uh, of, of that type and of that class and of that gen- those generations who, who looked at it that
0: way. All right. Let's now we have we have the Seven Years War. Then we have the agitation for American independence. Now we've had the Revolutionary War, and now we're getting back to where we were, you know, at the beginning of 1791. What has been happening during those years west of the Alleghenies among, among the Indians and the settlers? I mean, there, there's been... Continuing conflict, correct? Yes. Continuing, continuous,
1: sometimes, you know, continuous spasmodic conflict, sometimes very turning into formal warfare. And from the point of view of of the people living west and north of the Ohio River, what we call, you know, the War of Independence or the Revolutionary War was yet another phase in an ongoing series of violent conflicts over white Attempts to possess that land so they didn't look at it as oh the Americans have just declared independence now they're going to now they're going to fight a war of independence the way they naturally would have read uh, the declaration of independence and Jefferson's ideas about pursuit of happiness and so forth uh, they would have read it uh, for perfectly cogent reasons as yet another phase of warfare in which now uh, the crown that had actually been uh, the Indians only real uh, not always a very good one but a their only bulwark against this kind of rampant expansionism were now going to be pushed out. And so naturally, uh, many, though not all uh, of the involved nations allied with the with the British during that war. And so in the West, in the Western camp, what we think of as the Western campaign, I mean, what mainstream history tends to think of as the Western campaign uh, of the American Revolution and the War of Independence. It was essentially a war over the same kinds of the same kind of thing that had been going on for for decades before and would then continue to go on after the revolution. So that, that has all been going on. And George Washington became known as the town destroyer for a kind of scorched earth policy, not only in the West, but also uh, among the six nations of the Iroquois to the east. So coming out of that revolution, out of what we, th- we, we call the revolution, and then the British are now being kicked out. The British are withdrawing, leaving their former allies, these, these indigenous nations, sort of to fend for themselves. Uh, we get a whole new shakedown. Uh, in a series of shakedowns in terms of what, what this relationship is going to be and who has possession, sovereignty, and possession of that
0: land. Let's skip back now to 1791, and the, uh, Washington's gotten the, the bad news of de- St. Clair's defeat. He's resolved now to create a standing army, and with that army... And this is the subtitle of your book The Creation of the U.S. Army and the Invasion of the Opening of the West. And so the standing army is to conquer the lands west of the uh, Alleghenies for the colonial real estate interests.
1: Yeah, the long standing real estate interests that had begun in the colonial period and continued to exist and, in fact, formed much of. I mean, this is what I'm trying to get at in the, in, the, in the book, is formed much of the cause of revolution and also formed a cause of, of nationhood, those real estate interests have now been once again defeated and now abjectly and horribly defeated in what could have felt like the last ditch effort in some ways because there had not been the standing army. Now, one of the fascinating things about Washington responding to Sinclair's defeat so violently and, and now determining... To win a political battle, not a not a military battle, but a, a deeply fought a political battle to get the United States a permanent peacetime regular force of decent size is that he always wanted that anyway. And he, he and others who, who thought like him, and he, again, he was the leader of these, of these people, but he was far from alone. People like Alexander Hamilton and Henry Knox and others who had long thought since, during, since, since, the, since the revolution that the United States needed to no longer rely on militia and no longer rely on short-term sort of temporary recruitment to be, sort of, to be dissipated at the end of any particular campaign, but needed just to be a nation. To be a nation means having a national army. In fact, I think many people in the 18th century everywhere would have assumed that nationhood specifically meant that. So ever since the 1770s, Washington had been committed to the idea of forming an army for the purpose of creating nationhood and forming nationhood for the purpose of creating an army and entering the the modern world of the uh, of the European type nation state. So now he kind of has the it's a funny. It's a funny thing because he always wanted it and couldn't get it in the worst defeat that the U.S. actually would ever suffer at native hands. He got what he needed politically in order to bring about the creation of the
0: U.S. Army. And that takes place in, in your book. I mean, it opens in 1791 with the death of Major General Butler. And then large parts of the middle part of your book are this political battle in Philadelphia between the nationalist faction that wants the US Army and, and wants a European-like nation state and the objectors to that. who were, what is the nature of that political quarrel It takes maybe three years to play out. And who were the people that object and on what grounds? There were multiple forms of objection, which is part of the thing that
1: makes it politically, interesting to track how Washington and his colleagues got this thing through and got the bill passed uh, in Congress, because it doesn't perfectly shake down the way one might expect against sort of the the former nationalists and the former anti-federalists. There were there were a variety of reasons why people didn't like the idea of a standing army and why they thought the United States should never have one. Um, Some of it is straight up anti-federalism left over from, you know, sort of trying to refight ratification over this issue. Certainly old state sovereignty types who never had really wanted a strong national government to begin with saw this as the sort of the coup de grace. It's what they they had argued about this very issue uh, intensely during the uh, constitutional convention debates. And, and the idea that the, that the, it, of course it was in the constitution it had this this provision had made it into the constitution congress was empowered to form an army and yet congress had not done so precisely because there was no consensus about whether this should ever happen. So some of it's anti-federalism. There are people who are—I mean, New England people who—who who ha- some of whom had been anti-federalists too. Um, but there were there were sort of fe- federalist types or, or nat- people who had had been and still were nationalist types who thought that fighting an Indian, an Indian war for possession of the West um, just kind of was just morally and ethically wrong. I mean, there were those people there at the time saying, "What are we doing, expanding like this?" The same arguments that came up later in the late, late 19th and early 20th century about America's role in the larger world, the global world, were, were alive and well. And there were those who thought of uh, the Native people as, you know, they, they were sometimes, first of all, as should be left alone. And others really thought of them as as greater than white people in the classic kind of noble savage romanticism of the day as well. And then there were those who just f- believed as has come up time and again ever since, that the more, you, the more you militarize the country, the more you engage in war of conquest, the more you, the more you privilege that side of life, um, the, just the greater the power of the executive will grow, the greater the power of government will grow, and of course the executive power will grow greater than the legislative power. So there were many cogent objections to forming
0: a standing army. Washington and his political allies, among them, not only Hamilton, but also Robert Morris, the great financier of the American money elites. They managed to get the the army created when in 1790. Well, in
1: 1792, right uh, the, the Sinclair defeat we were just talking about occurs in the very end of, of 91. In 1792, right at the beginning of that year, I mean, as 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 you know, everybody geared up for a new session. Washington brought in. A series of documents I mean they built he he took his time, and the cabinet he had his cabinet work hard on building this kind of overwhelming set of paperwork uh, to sort of like dump on Congress with the with the express, you know, intention of making it politically almost impossible. I mean, not for everybody, because people did vote against this bill, but making it very difficult politically to live with the idea that, uh, you know, putting Congress on notice, essentially, that if they did not pass his army bill at the strengths, at the kinds of troop strengths and with the kinds of of longer term enlistments that that he had been wanting for years now, if if they finally did not do that, it would be on them uh, the, the not only Sinclair's defeat, which he already kind of had, they they very much structured these documents to make it clear that to Congress that they were they weren't explaining to Congress like reporting in an abject way. Oh, here's what happened here. They were letting Congress know this is on you and that any further depredations, as they used to call them on the frontier, which were clearly in plan. I mean, everybody out on the frontier was freaking out with terror. Naturally, anything else that happened would be on Congress. So it, they, they, they went through a political process of great adroitness and, and, and great aggressiveness to make it very difficult for Congress to
0: not pass that bill. And the bill has finally passed like something like 15 to 12 in the Senate. Is that right? Yeah, it had much more. It had greater difficulty in the Senate
1: uh, than in the House. And that uh, raises that that begin that sort of tips off uh, uh, the war that then ensues to conquer uh, that area, which is really the main subject of the book, was affected in some very odd and, and, and interesting ways by the, the deal that Washington had to cut to essentially break what was a t- virtual tie in the Senate because uh, he got serious pushback in the Senate. There were people in the Senate um, who took a took a. A different view kind of their own view which was yes we need to take over that area of course we do it's our sovereignty is there and America has to grow but it's just unethical to do it by warfare unless we have exhausted all other means and they didn't believe that Washington had exa- had sincerely attempted peace negotiations and they had good reason for that because peace negotiations had been sort of desultory up to that point, although the Washington administration denied that. And so really Washington cut a deal with certain key senators to say, OK, if you pass the bill, I, we will engage in newly assertive, newly sincere newly serious negotiating efforts to try to avoid the use of the very army you're giving us the power to use and that sets off during the, the sort of the ramp up for the war that ends up ensuing the conquest that ends up ensuing that all takes place in a, in a very strange context of Uh, an effort to make clear to those people in the Senate and the American people as a whole that very serious negotiations for peace are underway and that if they fail, it will be because the Indians were intractable, not because Washington expected to use the army. So it was supposed to look like a last resort.
0: But it wasn't. It was a deliberate setup to uh, take over the land. So let's get to the conquest now, you know, the latter half of your book. What year are we now talking about, and under whose command does the conquest take place? That is the Black Snake of your time. Yes,
1: yeah, he was referred to by his enemies actually, in with grudging respect, as the Black Snake, and his name was Anthony Wayne, also known uh, sometimes affectionately by his men as Mad Anthony, and uh, he, Washington appointing Wayne. As the general of this new army that didn 't exist by the way, I mean Wayne had to build Wayne, Washington Knox had to build that army from almost literally scratch, given what had happened with the Sinclair defeat and the fact that this was a new army, a new level of army anyway washington 's making Wayne the the commander of that army seemed to many at the time like a terrible idea, and probably the worst decision might turn out to be the worst decision he ever made. Wayne was. Had a, had an irascible personality and had actually spent the years since his very successful uh, revolutionary war career, kind of going for, spin, spiraling downward um, in debt and failed business op- opportunities, and ultimately had 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 been uh, had been elected to the house and then lost his seat for election fraud. This was the last person you might think at that point in his career would become really, uh, given what he accomplished in the end, sort of the critical general of American nationhoods being established.
0: And what did he accomplish? And and briefly, uh, you know, over what period of time and and marching how long, how large a force uh, north and west of the Ohio to... The Battle of Fallen
1: Timbers. Within just a couple of years from virtually nothing, starting in 1792 and climaxing in uh, 1794, Wayne Wayne created by endless endeavor and sort of extraordinary commitment the first real United States Army and not only created it, but led it to the first United States military victory. When I say United States, of course, I mean as a nation. Uh, It's tricky when I talk about this, because sometimes when I talk about the first victory or the first army, people go right back to the revolution. But this is a different entity with a different, a whole different uh, purpose and different structure. And that's what Wayne created. Was it called the Legion of the United States? Yes, it had a legion structure. The idea that there be multiple small armies, each kind of, each with artillery, each with cavalry, et cetera, et cetera, so they could operate sort of more flexibly than had been done before. And
0: the Battle of Fallen Timbers, more or less the same site as the defeat of... Saint Clair,
1: uh, not the exact same site. No, further, uh, no, further, further north and and uh, further northeast. Um, and where? But he had taken back the site of the defeat of Saint Clair. Yes,
0: and, and and the last battle is the Fallen Timbers battle. Yeah. Are are Little Turtle and Blue Jacket
1: present? Yes, both were present, and yet they had kind of come to the end of their partnership. And Little Turtle had stepped down from effect from effective leadership, and was only serving as a fighter. Blue Jacket had kind of taken over uh, leadership at that point because of their disagreements about how to cope with the the the, the advance of Wayne.
0: Well, I got to tell you, you know, Bill, I, I I really love this book. The this is really about setting up the permanent military establishment and the. The idea of the United States as an imperial world power is is right here in, in, at the very beginning.
1: Yeah, it is. We, we think of the imperialism starting in the late 19th century. But, of course, to get to that point, we had to take over the entire section of continent that we took over before we started looking abroad. And I think this has been left out of that story.
0: We've connected to the then with the now, the imperial past with the imperial present. Yes. It's a really fine book. And I, I am... Delighted to talk to you, Bill. We've been talking today to William Hoagland about his new book, Autumn of the Black Snake Creation of the United States Army and the Invasion that Opened the West. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you very much. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.